Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It's been nearly 30 years since the Congress passed meaningful gun violence prevention legislation despite overwhelming support for these measures from the American people. In those decades, more than a million people in America have died from gunshot wounds and more than two million have been injured. After the latest high-profile mass shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut a leading figure in efforts to reduce gun violence, led a bipartisan group of senators to a framework agreement on gun safety measures. He joins us here to discuss. Taking you now to Buffalo, New York, where police officials are discussing a mass shooting that happened in a supermarket. CBS News has confirmed at least 10 people are dead, more are injured. Tonight, people not only in Texas, but across the country are heartbroken after at least 19 children and at least two adults were gunned down in an elementary school in Uvalde. Senator Chris Murphy uh, is speaking on the Senate floor. Let's listen. Three living stepping over their classmates' bodies as they tried to flee. What's being touted as the most significant deal on new gun legislation in decades could be on the president's desk in weeks as the GOP's lead negotiator. I think there's a desire to get this thing done sooner rather than later. Senator Murphy, first of all, thank you so much for being with us today. We want to talk about this historic framework agreement that you've come up with. But first, if you could just walk us through the state of gun violence in America today and why it's been so difficult to get something done. Well, Alyssa, it's great to be with you and thank you for your tremendous advocacy, the way you've been able to support the anti-gun violence movement. It's just been inspirational, transformational. And, you know, I make the argument that we have been in the process over the course of the last 10 years in building up an anti-gun violence movement that one day would be as strong or stronger than the gun lobby. And this bill is not to the finish line. This bill, as we will talk about, is not everything I want. But this moment is a paradigm shifting moment in which finally we are talking about what we can do, not whether or not we can do anything. And the anti-gun violence movement has been building strength, getting ready for this very moment. But the state of gun violence in America is at a desperate moment because we have more homicides than ever before, increasing levels of suicide, Obviously, these cataclysmic mass shootings continue to plague the country. America is a more violent nation today than it was two years ago, five years ago. And that is not coincidental to the fact that we are 
more awash in guns than ever before. We saw gun sales increase during the pandemic by 25% all across this country. And when there are more guns out there, there are going to be more gun murders, more gun suicides. And so we need to leverage this moment when the country is demanding action to try to get to the root causes of our violence epidemic. The boyfriend loophole goes back 20 years when Congress made a half-hearted effort to keep guns out of domestic abusers' hands. But there was concern that innocent men's gun rights could be impeded because bitches be lying. So Congress defined domestic violence in a way that focuses on spouses, cohabitating couples, and couples with kids. But they excluded boyfriends who are just keeping it casual. Speaking of the root causes, are there any other countries which experience gun violence in a way that we do? We presume that they have many of the similar problems with mental health or with poverty or with some of the other underlying issues with gun violence. Does anywhere else in the world look like the United States? Well, it's a good leading question. And of course, the answer is no. There's no other nation in the world that has the violence rates we have in the United States. And, you know, to the extent that there are countries, for instance, in Central and South America, who are plagued by violence is largely because they are awash in American guns. Mexico can be in certain parts a very violent place, but they have one gun store in the entire country. All of their guns come from the United States, illegal trafficking over the border. I do always get frustrated and worried when my Republican colleagues talk about epidemic of gun violence as a mental health problem. We have a very broken mental health system in this country, and the bill we've introduced will help address the shortage of mental health providers in America. But we don't have any more mental illness than any other country in the world, but we have all of the gun violence. And that tells you that the factor that matters most is not mental illness. We don't have any more of it. The factor that matters most is the availability of guns. Plenty of people have homicidal and suicidal thoughts in other countries. It is just much harder and in some nations impossible for them to get their hands on a handgun or AR-15, a weapon of mass destruction. That's the difference between us and other nations. Sure. Now, the last time Congress passed significant gun violence legislation was in the 1990s. In the meantime, more than a million people have been killed by guns in America. Probably more than two million have been injured by guns in America. I don't understand. Why is it so hard to do anything? What are the obstacles to getting just something done? The gun lobby in the United States is incredibly powerful. There's no other corollary like it in any other nation. And they have intertwined themselves with the conservative movement in a really interesting way. Right now, if you're a Republican candidate, maybe the most important endorsement that will often matter to you is the endorsement of the gun lobby, because that endorsement from gun groups serves as a broader proxy for your conservative values, right? You're standing up against liberals trying to take away guns, then you're signaling what a strong conservative you are. That has prevented us from taking action. But over the course of the last 10 years, we have been building up this movement, this anti-gun violence movement, which now has more members than the gun lobby does. We have more money and we have the public on our side. So you know, why we saw this time around Republicans coming to the table is primarily because there is enormous political benefit in landing where 80% of your constituents are who want stronger gun laws. And we now have the political movement necessary to carry that majority of Americans to elections and to the ballot box. 
So let's talk about the historic framework that you've put together. What is in the framework? I know that a lot of people first approach this framework through a prism of what's not in it. And I understand this is not a bill that has a ban on assault weapons. It's not a bill that has universal background checks. But there are five changes in U.S. gun laws in this bill. All of them will save lives. I would argue thousands of lives. First, we're going to help states pass red flag laws. These are laws that allow courts to take away temporarily guns from people who are threatening suicide or threatening a mass shooting. And these laws have proven to be incredibly successful in saving lives. Officials call the laws extreme risk protection orders, otherwise known as red flag laws. What they do in general terms is relatively simple. Police or a family member can ask a judge to order a temporary removal of weapons from someone who represents a danger to themselves or others. Second, we are going to close what's called the boyfriend loophole. This is a big loophole in American law where if you are convicted of beating up your girlfriend, you can still buy a gun. You have a restraining order against you because you are a threat to your girlfriend. You can still buy a gun. We're going to close that loophole. Third, we treat under 21-year-old buyers a little different. I would love to just raise the age to buy a weapon to 21. We don't have the votes for that. So we're going to have an enhanced background check for anybody under 21 that will likely take a few days. So it'll be a kind of de facto waiting period, a pause on these sales. That's important because sometimes these young people are in crisis, like the shooter in Uvalde, and it gives a little time to cool down. And then the last two changes, we're going to have the first ever criminalization of straw purchasing. We're going to increase penalties for gun trafficking. That's going to allow us to stop some of the flow of illegal weapons into our cities. And then we're going to update and clarify the definition of a licensed gun dealer to make sure that the people out there who really are commercial sellers of guns are all licensed. Because if you're licensed, you have to do background checks. And we want to make sure that anybody that's in the repeated business of selling guns commercially has to do background checks. Those are four, five big changes. They're going to save a lot of lives. And then on top of that, we're going to spend billions of dollars in new mental health investments, opening up new you know, clinics all across the country, school-based clinics. We're going to make a huge down payment to fix our mental health crisis in the nation, and that will make a big difference as well. The agreement in principle would include financial support for states to create or administer red flag laws to temporarily remove guns from individuals deemed to be a threat, expanded investments in mental health, school safety, and enhanced background checks for gun buyers. I'm curious about how the framework translates into legislation and whether, you know, the framework will hold together through that process. I think it will. The heavy lifting was putting that framework together. There's a decent amount of detail inside the document that we put out. And my belief is that everybody who's part of these negotiations is committed to putting that framework into legislative text. I know there's a worry that Republicans are never going to sort of get to that final step, right? This step of passage that they're always willing to engage in conversations, but they're not willing to actually vote for these kind of changes, especially since some of the biggest gun rights groups in the country have already come out against our framework. I think this time is different. I think the American public have made it really clear to Republicans and Democrats in the Senate that doing nothing is not an option. And so I don't sense any let up in the seriousness of people that I've been negotiating with to get this to the finish line. Well, how much does Senator McConnell coming out in general support of the framework help the process of getting it through the Senate when it comes up for a vote? I think if this framework becomes the actual piece of legislation, it's a step forward, a step forward on a bipartisan basis. 
and further demonstrate to the American people that we can come together, which we have done from time to time on things like infrastructure and postal reform, uh, to make progress for the country. We already had 10 Republicans committed to this proposal before Senator McConnell announced that he was likely going to support it. I think the more important thing that Senator McConnell did was to appoint John Cornyn as the negotiator and give him some space for this negotiation. Senator McConnell and I disagree on a lot of things. Obviously, our positions on guns are very different. It has been important that there's been the space for these negotiations to take part. Okay, take us in the room a little bit. So you have these groups of senators who do, as you've mentioned, have very different starting points on what needs to get done. How does the negotiations unfold? The negotiations started over the course of about 24 hours. I initially reached out to Senator Cornyn just to express my shock and horror of what happened in the state. We continued a conversation and agreed to sit down at about the same time. Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona expressed an interest in trying to, to get involved and help. And so Kirsten and I sit down and talked through what we thought could get done. And then all of a sudden, Sinema, myself, Senator Corn and Senator Tillis were in a room. Senator Corn and I have worked together. We have actually passed some smaller anti-gun violence bills. So we have a success record, but we've never done anything this big. And so I give a lot of credit to Senator Tillis and Senator Sinema, who brought a real sort of new energy into this process. They both were committed to growing our group to 10 and 10. And I think the four of us ended up being the right mixture, progressives, conservatives, to get this thing done. I don't want to diminish the importance of the things that were in the bill. You mentioned there were some things that are really, really popular that didn't get in, like the assault weapons ban, uh, universal background checks, and things that will actually save a lot of lives. The latest CBS News polling reveals that a clear majority of Americans favor a variety of gun restrictions including universal background checks, a federal red flag law, and a ban on the AR-15-style semi-automatic rifle often used in mass shootings. And I'm curious what the next step is on those things where there's such near, like, universal support in the American public. And I think that there's a fear that this may be the last step instead of the first step. Yeah, I don't know why people have that fear, because if you study social change in this country, you study movement building, no movement got everything they wanted in the first piece of legislation they passed. I was speaking to the House caucus this morning and Representative Clyburn reminded everybody in that room that the 63 Civil Rights Act led to the 64 Voting Rights Act. The marriage equality movement didn't stop once states started allowing gay couples to adopt. In fact, that just gave fuel to the movement. In fact, if you study social change movements that succeed, it is always a story of getting a little and then a little more and then a lot and eventually getting your hands wrapped around the full extent of the problem. So I think that the movement will see that action leads to success and dive in deeper. I think Republicans will learn that there's no political downside to voting for changes like this, and you'll have even more of them signing up. All history tells me is that you don't say no to progress because progress tends to lead to more progress. 
you know, we hear so much about how divided the country is and how divided the Senate is, about as divided as the Senate can be by party, right? But do you think that this might be a springboard for initiatives in other areas? Do you think we've maybe found a model of how to work together on Build Back Better or healthcare or the economy or other things that have been difficult to work through? My hope is that we still are going to be able to get something done on climate in particular. The short answer to your question is I'm not sure that this is a model for other issues in that this issue is so unique. I mean, there's nothing that matters more to Americans and parents than the physical safety of their children. And so you had this moment after Uvalde in, in Buffalo where there was just this outpouring of demand, of sudden demand, of emotional demand. And Senator Cornyn heard that, Senator Tillis heard that, others heard it, that allowed us to get to this moment today. So I hope that this is a platform for work on other issues. Maybe this is a bit unique given the emotional nature of the topic we're dealing with. You've talked a lot about the need to get to 10 senators on both sides, and that's because of the filibuster. And you need 60 votes to get through the Senate. Why was the choice made to focus on getting 10 Republican votes with a bill that might not have gone as far as the Democratic caucus would have gone, as opposed to working basically on two senators who have opposed eliminating or modifying the filibuster and getting a bill that does maybe take bigger steps on some of those issues. Those two senators have made up their minds. We have spent the last two years talking about the possibility of changing our rules. That is not going to happen this year. And I know that's hard for people to hear, but it just is the truth. And we could decide to just pack it in and not do any bipartisan work, not try to pass anything of substance in the Senate, or we could live with the rules that we have. And I'll just be honest with you, when I'm back in Connecticut, people are super clear with me. They want us to find a path forward. They want us to compromise. They want us to make progress on this issue of gun safety because they're really fearful about their kids' safety in schools. They're fearful for their safety in public spaces. So on this one, while I certainly support reforming the filibuster and I'll continue to advocate for it, I just couldn't sit in the corner and not try to work out a compromise given that the rules that we have right now in this foreseeable future are not going to change. We recently had seen some of the young survivors of the Uvalde shooting testify before Congress, as well as some of the families who lost their children in both Buffalo and Uvalde. And I wonder how impactful that testimony was. And do you think that it helped push this framework forward? Oh, I think it was. I, I think the cumulative impact of what happened in Uvalde certainly moved many of my colleagues, but I also know that what really mattered is that it moved the American public. And what often happens when we go on these week-long breaks where we're in our states is that these negotiations can sometimes fall apart on sensitive topics. But on guns during the Memorial Day week where we were home, momentum grew. Why? Because Republicans went back to their states. And in the wake of Uvalde, parents and voters and kids in those states were so moved that they were telling their senators you better do something this time. I'm serious, right? There'll be consequences if you don't. And so it was more that the impact of Uvalde really transformed people's voices 
rather than it having a direct transformative effect on members of the Senate. I think it did have an impact on members of the Senate, but the more important thing is that voters raise their voices. Well, I think that's really important to hear because I don't think many people believe that when they call their senator's office that they're really hurt. And, you know, a lot of times you get a form letter back that sort of makes it feel like we're not being heard. But there was a senator from Wyoming who said specifically that she was inclined to not support this until she heard from her constituents. How much does that matter? It does matter. It does. I know sometimes when you hear how many people are writing emails and calling, you think that your voice doesn't matter, but it does. And you rightly referenced the senator from the Mountain West from Wyoming who said, hey, I was probably not going to vote for this, but I've gotten so much input into my office telling me to consider it. I am considering it. And I have no doubt that the amount of both organic feedback and organized feedback coming into members' offices made a difference, but also the cumulative impact of everything that has been done over the last 10 years has had an impact as well. We used to live prior to 2013, you know, Washington, D.C., where the NRA got everything they wanted. And there frankly wasn't any chance of even a conversation happening around tightening the laws, the gun laws of the nation. And so you've seen this slow but steady paradigm shift in which the gun lobby is losing power, we're gaining power. And that is all due to the cumulative voice and, and activism of this movement. Do you think that that can apply to states as well, where we see Florida enacting permitless carry? Uh, Texas has sort of just gone off the rails. Can the same activism work on a state level where federal laws may not be reaching quite as deeply as we'd like them to? No, of course it can. And I know there are some states that are really hard to operate in. But I'll guarantee you that background checks is popular in every single state. And this activism is just as useful when it comes to state legislatures and referendums as it is to what we do in Washington. Great. And I know you have a hard stop here. So I just have one more question for you. And that is, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is the survivors and the parents and the uh, moms and dads of those who have fallen in not just these mass shootings, but everyday gun homicides that happen in our cities, the fact that they continue to come to Washington, that they go to state capitals, that they speak truth to power. I just can't imagine both working through your grief and being an activist at the same time. Uh, what gives me hope is that those parents, even with all of the failure of the last 10 years, have continued to come back over and over again asking for change. And what gives me hope is that they, are the biggest believers in this bill. It is those parents, it is those survivors who say, get something done, show progress. And that gives me hope. Well, Senator Murphy, you give us hope. Thank you so much for the work that you've done on this, not just now, but over the years. I know that this is an issue you've been dedicating your career to, and we so very much appreciate that. So thank you for what you do 
and for being a part of the podcast. Well, again, Alyssa, thanks so much for what you do. And thanks for having me on. And then she went back in the room to go hide. And then we went to go hide behind my teacher's desk and behind the backpacks. And then he shot the little window, and then he went to the other classroom, and then he went, there's a door between our classrooms, and he went through there and shot my teacher and told my teacher goodnight and shot her in the head, and then he shot some of my classmates and the whiteboard. When I went to the backpacks, uh, he shot my friend that was next to me, and I thought he was going to come back to the room, so I grabbed the blood and I put it all over me. And what did you do then when you put the blood on yourself? He stayed quiet, and then I got my teacher's phone. On 9-11, 2,996 people were killed in the terrorist attacks on our country. We changed the way we travel. We changed the way we police ourselves. We went to war. We even changed the way we borrow books from libraries, spending trillions of dollars in an effort to prevent another tragedy of that scale. In 2021, an average of 3,751 people died from gunshots in America every single month. This should not be this hard. This should be the easiest thing in the world for our government to do, to look at the carnage in our country and to have the basic humanity to act. I have no idea how any human, let alone any elected official, can look at the 19 dead children in Uvalde and think that the NRA's perversion of the Second Amendment is more important than the next classroom full of children just like them. I hope this framework succeeds and that all of the proposals it contains become law. But this absolutely cannot be all that the Senate does. This has to be a start and not the final product. And we have to hold every single member of Congress who opposes it to account in November. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.